So Exodus 1, uh, 8 to 22, and we're continuing and extending the story a little further. Exodus has been as walking us through walking with God and beginning in Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh storehouses, storehouse cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that the Israelites multiplied and the more that they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel weak as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the, the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. I'm sorry, this is just, I'm sorry, as a guy, I can't comment, but this is just, there's something here. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Don't go home and say this to your wife, Pharaoh. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but the rest you shall let every daughter live. Here we go. Okay. A message about ancient midwives. And we wonder why there's so many empty seats. So bring your friends and neighbors. You'll see this is not a message or story about midwives, but about God and his presence and his strength, his faithfulness, that we will see that throughout the story. But these midwives, who maybe if you had heard their names rightly pronounced, uh, Shifra and Puah, uh, you would wonder where on the pages of Scripture they might have shown up, and could you have guessed if we gave you a multiple choice? Uh, maybe not until this morning or being reminded of it, if you perhaps have read the story recently. They're not the heroes of the story. Certainly, the story doesn't claim that they are, uh, but their names are written in. They found favor from God, His kindness and His goodness, and their names are written in to one of the grandest stories ever told, fitting into the scriptures that have been preserved for thousands of years. There's something to that. You're right, Mark. There is something to that. 
but it still is a challenging passage that requires some work to process, to receive, and to wonder, can we even learn or apply anything from this part of this story? I've invited us, uh, as we're a few weeks in now to the new year and to this series, to a Walking with God series with Exodus as guide for us, that we are meant to be a people who walk with God. This is not a new idea or metaphor. Uh, the Apostle Paul probably sums it up most succinctly, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit of God, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk with the Spirit. But throughout the Scriptures, that metaphor is used of journeying, of walking, even Noah and Enoch, some of the first patriarchs on the pages of Genesis, are said to have walked with God. So we are resonating with God's people throughout history across millennia by joining in and saying, what does that look like today? How do we walk with God today? How do we draw near to Him as He draws near to us? And we'll again respond today with that word in mind. May we become a walking people. And I'm actually inviting us to walk. Some of you are already walkers. Others uh, would say, yep, that's, that would be good. I should do that for, for both my physical health and maybe even spiritual health. And just inviting us in our walking, even if it's around the house or to the corner and back. We're at different places in our, in our age and, and, and physical abilities or lack thereof or declining or strengthening. Uh, some of us walk miles every day. Take a portion of that walk and intentionally go slower than you already would. Some of you would say, I already walk slow. Uh, slow down, listen, receive what God might have for you that day. Uh, maybe it leads to prayer, gratitude. That's another second rhythm I'm inviting us to, to be thankful people in all things. But primarily as you walk, just be present. Be present. Listen, invite. God be with me now. I know you are. Let me know, let me know more acutely that you are. I want to hear from you. I want to walk with you today. Present yourself to God. Simple rhythms with intentionality day by day is how we grow, is how we develop spiritually. And then the third, so walk, thank, and then wake. Wake up. Some of you already wake up early. I'm not telling you you should wake up early. If that's a message you receive, yeah, I need to, I need to win that battle early. I need to wake up earlier. Maybe it's five minutes with intentionality to present your day to God. Win the day. Invite the first voice into your life in the morning to be God's voice. There's lots of ways to do that. But it's probably not through that device that is sitting on your bedside table. I'm inviting you before, and you may look at the clock, that needs to silence the alarm, but before any other voice is brought in, any other news feed or email or text or anything, to present yourself to God out of bed, find another place to sit, or stand and present yourself before God that day and say, God, I want your voice first today. And then give him space or open the word or say a quick prayer and just, and then maybe you're right on, on to your day. Maybe that leads into an extended time with your coffee and a book you're reading or then for, certainly a podcast you're listening to or anything that might encourage you. I'm not asking us to be religious people. I'm asking us to be intentional, disciplined people. And for you then to take that, respond to it, and express it as God is interacting with you. But I think these simple kinds of practices, these three specifically, have formed me spiritually 
or been the door or the gate to form me spiritually, maybe more than any others. That consistency and that presence with God. So I'm, this is what I'm inviting us to. Uh, some of you need to be encouraged. You're doing it. Keep going. Uh, that first month of new rhythms, whatever they are, is the hardest. Uh, and if you've missed some days or haven't started, it's not too late. It can begin anytime. Begin today. Begin again today. Always making it new. The influences in our world will form us into their image if we are not intentionally being formed into another. Thankfully, God has made us in His image. He has made us in His image and is inviting us to continually be formed to reflect Him more and more. But our world, our news feeds, our surrounding culture is pretty good at disciple-making. We must work intentionally against that current in order to be disciplined and discipled into the image of God. And I'm calling us all to that. So using Exodus as a guide, I will contend that it's more relevant than we could ever imagine. Yep, that's going to be put to the test when you read a a snapshot passage like we heard today and say, how could that possibly be relevant? This, these events happened approximately 3,000 years ago with the, the final text of it being written 2,000 or more years ago. Uh, it, and how could that possibly apply to our lives today? We'll see that many times throughout the story. So I will invite us to hold the big story in mind because like many parts of Scripture, especially the narrative parts, they weren't first trying to write history like a documentary and tell us what happened in detail. They may capture some of what happened in history, but primarily they're a theological history, or even an allegorical history. They're stories that are intentionally meant to reveal more, more than the details of what could have happened, to reveal what may always happen in God's meta-narrative, in His grand scale. So that's the overarching perspective that we are trying to hold, and really the only right way that we can read, understand, and begin potentially to apply some of these ancient narratives. What meaning could it possibly have to our life if we don't hold the grand narrative in mind of God's redemptive purposes throughout history to love and to pursue His people, that He would dwell with them, save, deliver, rescue, provide, sustain, and be with them forever. This is the grand narrative. It's where Exodus fits into the story, and it's where we try to enter into it. Because God invites His people to trust Him, to love Him, and to follow Him, but does not force them to, we see the story of human history, and even in our own lives, an easy drift away. Sometimes an outright rebellion against, sometimes simply a wandering or drifting away from. Since God does not demand or force compliance, but invites and calls to be His people, we see an incredible amount of evil, hurt, harm, and oppression against others, as we witness again on our news feeds this week. I think that statement stands whenever this message is being listened to, tragically. We see it throughout history, and this is not God's intention 
The grand narrative is God has created at first a perfect garden, beautiful, abundant, rich, eternal, where he lived with his creation, sustaining them, loving them, blessing them, inviting them to do the work of cultivation, to take and cultivate, create new beauty expressions, to progress his kingdom. This is the picture that bookends the entire story. The entire Bible goes from garden to garden. In the end is a, another beautiful garden with a river and the tree of life with its leaves for the healing of the nation. This is recorded in Revelation 20, 21. But this garden is within a city because God's world has progressed and expanded through his people to cultivate a city and to make space for the multitudes who will be there dwelling with God again. In the middle, the whole story runs along God's love and pursuit and presence with his people that would ultimately expand and flourish and multiply to the end, to the new heavens and new earth. And we will see within the story of Exodus one of one of the primary examples of that as God's people are in the wilderness and invited to build a tabernacle, which will later would become the brick and stone temple of God, but this tabernacle would be God's dwelling place. He would descend and dwell with his people. And it's pictured and decorated like a new garden with flowers and trees and buds and life and light. It is the reminder of the Garden of Eden and now that we are on this side of history and with the prophecies of what's to come, the future picture of God's dwelling with all creation as the new heavens and new earth are his temple. So this grand narrative, which I'll keep reminding us of, is so important when we enter into the specific portions of story that sound absolutely foreign to our ears and we wonder how possibly God could be in and with these people or apply it to our lives. Now, some of you are probably thinking, why is this taking so long? Or you've thought that before. This is thousands of years in the making. God seems painstakingly slow to be bringing about his purposes. And we need to remember that God is not mysteriously absent, as I focused in on last week, but he is mysteriously present often. We believe in his presence, but there's many times and even, even seasons of hundreds of years where it seems like God is silent or not engaging. And then there's other times where he seems to intervene into history in miraculous ways, which are often what's recorded in our scriptures across those thousands of years. We may wonder today, God, where are you? Where's your intervention in a miraculous way now, here? Maybe that's on behalf of our world that's in crisis, turmoil, war, and violence. Maybe that's more personal. God, where are you now? It feels like it's been hundreds of years since I've sensed your presence, heard your voice, and felt your closeness. For some of you, that's the tone of your prayers if you're still praying but you are here, and God is here with you. Later in Exodus chapter 34, we get a snapshot of the character of God as God's name 
continues to be made known. We'll see that throughout the story. His name is made known. His character is revealed. In Exodus 34, verse 6, Moses is with him on, on the mountain. The Lord, the Lord, this is Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the character of God. Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight, O God, are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. The Apostle Peter, toward the end of his life, picks up on this theme. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. And he's writing to the church at large. So I think we are in that wake receiving these words. Do not forget this one thing, dear church. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, but a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Would he still, would Peter still say those words nearly 2,000 years later? This is probably decades removed from the death and resurrection of Christ, He's indicating here a snapshot of those first believers and disciples who felt like Jesus is going to come back. He said he was. He's coming back. Why is he delaying so long? And Peter is saying, because there's so many more that need to come under repentance to come to know him. That work is not done. That's why he's waiting. So be patient. Don't consider it slow from your perspective. Consider God's perspective and who he is. Whew, I think Peter's faith would have been tested to know it was going to be another two millennia. But I think we can join in with that same heart of God to see loved ones come to know the love of God and walk in relationship with Jesus. That that's our longing too. That that work does not seem complete when we look around our world. But we are led and invited to trust in God's mysterious presence and ways. Remember how Genesis ends? I pointed us to this last week. This brings us into more specific context. So looking at the broad narrative and now looking more specifically, how did the last book end? Because it's a flow. It's a continuation. We did that work a couple weeks ago. Genesis ends, verse, chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph and his words to his brothers I won't recount that story I did last week. If you're new with us, bear with me, but hear this declaration from Joseph. Even though you intended to do me harm, he says to his brothers, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. An incredible declaration of God's sovereignty and his mysterious presence throughout the story. This does not mean God made the evil happen or led the brothers to do the evil. But God allowed what always happens when people walk away apart from God to their own desires to lead out their own sin and evil. But Joseph does declare that God's intentions are always good and he will redeem in the grand scope of things. That was his faith and his belief and it challenges us today. Will Israel... Remember their heritage. That's how Genesis ends. Where we pick up the story, it's been a, a few hundred years. That's what happens when Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. A few hundred years have passed. And we hear it said, as, as Mark read, 
This people, who was a small family, became this mighty nation in those years. They were being fruitful and multiplying, filling the land, but they were all still in Egypt. For a time, and maybe for many of those years, there was a partnership, as they were foreigners and immigrants, but they certainly weren't the only foreigners and immigrants that would have been in Egypt as one of the the world powers of that day, a rich and fertile area that could actually provide for many. And there may have been great cooperation for many of those years. But in these latter days, a new ruler, a new evil, we'll come to see, Pharaoh says, no, I will not see this nation continue to multiply and be a threat to our security. And he begins to oppress this nation. And God is allowing it to happen. Not not sending it, we'll wrestle with this tension of God's sovereignty as we continue in the story. But he's allowing this oppression to happen to his people while he is present with them, seeing that they are fruitful, multiply, and continue to fill the earth. But Israel would have likely said, God, where are you? Intervene, rescue, heal, stop this oppression. Are you not good, God? We're trying to stand on the faith of our ancestors, but that's been hundreds of years. Where are you now in our distress? Very easy to assume that the faithful who are still striving to worship their God, the God of their fathers, would have prayed prayers like that or their heart cry. And we can resonate so easily with those kinds of prayers. God, where are you now? It seems that you were, you were present in days of old. Where are you today in our, in our world, in our midst? Have you left us, God? We hold this meta-narrative in mind, standing on the faith of, of the saints throughout history, and we say, is that enough? Is that enough for our faith? Or do we demand that God shows up now to prove his presence with us. We invite it. God, teach us to invite it and long for it, but not demand it, that we would rest on your presence and power throughout history, that the story you're writing is still the same story, and you are not done. May we be people like Joseph that say, we look into the world and see the evil, even evil perpetuated and hurting us and declare, you did not send that God, but your intentions are always for good. It may not feel good to me. I lean into that part of the story and all who have been oppressed and abused, even for their faith, and say, yet God, your story arc will lead to redemption, to healing, and to your presence for all the nations one day. I believe, God, help my unbelief. That's been a prayer that we've prayed so often. Now let's practice with that grand story in mind how we enter into the pages of Scripture. Maybe you read daily Scripture. Maybe you're maybe that devotional that you might read takes you to different portions of Scripture that are out of context. And you say, this is strange. Now, a lot of those devotionals direct us to the passages that are a little more clear or straightforward or wisdom-oriented. But if you're a reader of the whole story, maybe through the course of the year, you're on a reading plan, you're going to come to parts like this that that are going to raise more questions than they're going to answer. 
I want to give us at least a couple tools and frames to enter in and to interact with stories like this one. As we heard read, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, this is Exodus 1 verse 15, said to the midwives, Shifra and Puah, names are recorded. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives feared God, however, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. Outright defiance, rebellion against a ruler's orders. They let the boys live. The king summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered the Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like your Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Maybe they believed there was some truth in that, that man, our people are more vigorous than your people. But this is an outright deception or lie. They are defying the Pharaoh. Now, now, most of us would read this story, I think, and say, good. He's asking them to do the unthinkable, to kill baby children. Tragically, throughout history, that's been a reality. But in this case, it's still, it's tragic for us to even read and consider. And they said no. At the risk, we have to imagine, of their own lives. We're not told that he directly threatened them, but knowing the rest of the story and who this man was, the killing of of innocent people seems to not bother him in the least. So likely they had that choice to make. Will we defy and stand firm against this decree? We will not do it. We will not be participants. It may cost us our own lives. But it's an outright lie to the Pharaoh, and it seems that their lives are spared. And I think what's most shocking is the next portion of this Scripture, verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, And the people increased even more. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God blesses these lying women. There's certainly plenty of portions of Scripture that tell us to speak truth and honor, value the truth, even to honor our leaders and our rulers, even those that are opposed to God's will. How do we reconcile these kinds of challenges couple principles of Bible study and application. One, if you're, you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me use this frame a lot, description versus prescription. As we come to Scripture, we must first say, is this a description of, of an event or a time, or is this prescription? Is this inviting us, the reader, to therefore change, live differently, or do something differently because of what is said and recorded? And so much of Scripture is description. It's describing events that did take place. Now we need, as I said earlier, uh, we need to have the wisdom to know when is it what always happens? It's telling a a broad story arc, and this is how we know that God is present at work with His people because we understand the full meta-narrative. And when is it a specific story that might, might be highlighting something in the broader story? We are not to take a description like this and say, therefore, we we must lie to evil leaders and God will bless us. That would force the Scripture to do something that it's not intending to do. What I do think it reveals is that God sees 
his people in the midst of the most trying times. It says they feared God, which is amazing in itself that these hundreds of years have passed and they still sought to honor God and his character, knowing that he was for life, not death, even at the cost of their own life. That God saw them in the midst of an incredibly difficult, trying time. And his posture toward them was kindness, favor, love. When they are oppressed by evil and willing to stand against it, his posture is love and blessing and kindness. I think that can give us hope in the midst of hard trials and places. Likely, we've never been tested like this. And to say we would do other than outright defy is probably a slightly arrogant. God's posture is favor and grace. He sees us and he is with us, especially as we seek to honor him above all others. We have to also know that the grand story is God's salvation, deliverance, and rescue of his children. And I believe that is what's being called out here in the actual saving and deliverance of baby children. We'll see that for Moses in the next chapter. And by the way, standing up for, willing to lay down our own life on behalf of the defenseless, the weak, in order to spare and save is quite literally the heart of God in the gospel. And these women, Shifra and Puah, joined in to the heart of God, and his posture was kindness. Perhaps he did not sanction their outright line. We see other places in Scripture. I think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel, who defied the king, were thrown into the furnace, and God spared their lives. That could have been their story. Total speculation. There's other times where God allows the death of his saints to occur. There are simply parts of Scripture that we do not know, things that we want to know, know but do not know, but we have been given enough, the things we need to know. So that's the first principle, a reminder, and we'll need it again as we go through the story. What is description versus prescription? What is describing what did happen, not what must always happen and what must I do, Understanding the difference of the specific circumstances and small stories versus the grand meta-narrative. As we hold this big story, that's principle number two, always hold this big story in mind and recognize that's what's being proclaimed. That our God is a God who saves, preserves, rescues, and sustains. That his intention is for the good of his children and for the life of his children. That his posture is first grace Mercy, forgiveness, kindness, and blessing, not punishment and condemnation. Know his first intentions and his first posture. That's the grand narrative, and we must hold it as we seek to apply or understand the smaller parts of this story. These midwives are not the heroes of the story. This story is about God and his kindness, mercy, grace, and salvation. Just like so few of the characters on our pages of Scripture are lifted up as the heroes to emulate. They're the ones that point us to the God who is incredible. 
The God who chose these men and women to do amazing things through. These weak or helpless or unlikely that he shows up and blesses and invites in and uses to achieve his his grand purposes and enter into his story. That's what it's about. And that's what we'll see throughout Exodus. Just like in most of Scripture, as we read the story, it makes us long for a better king, a better priest, a better prophet, better rulers to follow, to trust, who are benevolent. It points us all forward to God himself, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the righteous prophet, the greatest king, the compassionate priest. So we will see Moses who becomes a great leader, but not a perfect one. And it makes us long for a better one. We'll see Aaron, his brother, who becomes the high priest, but far from a perfect one. He stumbles and doubts and distrusts God and leads people astray. And he is the mediator that God works through. It makes us long for a better priest, a more perfect mediator, We'll see in the tabernacle, as beautiful as it was, it's incomplete. It's restrictive. It keeps people away from God's presence. And it points us forward to Jesus, who will be the fulfillment of the tabernacle, of God's perfect presence with his people, releasing God's presence fully into the world. God loves and pursues his children, calling and inviting them into the story. But as we interact with it, we're one, we're reminded that he calls and invites us and writes us into his story. And two, that should make us live in a way that points toward the mercy, the grace, and the power of our God because we are not the worthy ones. He is. So these midwives are written by name into the pages of history. One of the grandest stories of all time, Shifra and Puah. Not the heroes of the story, but their names are written in. They found the grace and the favor and the blessing of God. May that give us hope. This can be our story too. Thankfully, not the specific circumstances, but our story in the unassumed, weak, ignored, marginalized, the least likely ones, being seen by God when you face trials challenges, oppression. When you seek to confront evil or stand firm, God is with you. And his posture toward you is kindness, grace, and mercy. The outcome may not be what you would want or we would all want. That's not the promise. But his promise is presence. His grace and his favor and his posture be with you. So as we respond today, to the words of James, the apostle, chapter 4, verse 7. So submit yourselves then to God. Resist evil. Resist the devil. He will flee. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. This is our invitation as we draw near. We take another step today, another step toward him. A small one, a simple one. Be people of actual movement. We invite you to come and get the communion elements there in the back, here in the front. Receive. Walk toward him. Draw near. That's a tangible way, but this week as we walk, may it be a spiritual one. Through one of the invitations of those simple disciplines, wake, walk, thank, 
or through your own that God is inviting you to, walk with Him. You may not perceptively see the change day by day. For those of you that are also in the beginning of the year, trying to get a little fitter, a little stronger, lose a little weight, it's really difficult to see that change day over day. And often that scale is your enemy. (laughs) But faithfulness day by day over weeks and months, and that change can be significant. As we walk with God, may it be similar. Be faithful. Don't give up. The small steps may be the most important ones. Keep going. Read chapter 2 this week if you would like. We'll move into it by God's grace next week. Let me pray for you and invite Catherine and Tommy and Brett to come lead us in response. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We, we do know that. We continue to declare that. And you know our doubts at times. Maybe they're less this morning. Maybe we're sensing through your word, through your presence, through something that was said, through a song that was sung or about to be sung. We're, we're going to sense that you are weaving, that you are writing, because we're attuning ourselves to you. We've, we've paused in this place, in this way. It's just one way, but in this way we've paused and said, we want to we set aside for a time all other news, all other voices, and hear from you. Not my words, Lord, may they not be my words, but yours through your spirit. And we see you weaving, and our doubts are going smaller. You are here. You are with us. I believe that is some of our story here. May we just respond to that, hold on to that, cling to that as we walk this week. Because we know we'll walk out these doors and into the rest of our day and our Mondays and our Tuesdays, and we will have these moments of what, what is happening. Are you even here, God? How am I responding like this? I felt so close to you. Now I feel so distant from you. Lord, may your people be encouraged and reminded by your presence always. Walk by faith daily. But, oh God, your grace and your mercy and your desire is to be revealed and to make yourself known to them. Would you do so? Would you teach us in those moments to figure out how to pause again, set aside again, to recenter with you, even if it's for a moment, and invite your voice and your presence back to us? We need you, God. Thank you for your grace that we can do that work every day. It's the ongoing work of walking with you every day, and your grace abounds to us. You delight in us every time we turn to you. And we do so now. We believe you are delighted and you are inviting us to so much more. The riches of your gifts and your mercy are unknown and unfelt. May we begin to receive them more and more and be a walking people with you that would invite others to do the same for your glory, for our joy, in the name of the Father, And the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.